I think, um, especially if it's performance related, we're scared as employers to say, you can't do this job. Um, and so what you get a lot of times and what we have a client or had a client that, uh, that did it a ton, just I'm going to classify every termination as you're not the right fit or we're going a different direction. And, and I hate that because you're, you're avoiding the confrontational moment or the uncomfortable moment, not necessarily confrontational, but the uncomfortable moment of saying your performance isn't up to snuff. And the result is you're providing the employee with very little knowledge about why they're being terminated. And when employees don't have knowledge, they fill the gaps. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. If there's one thing that almost all employees and all managers agree on, it's that Performance management sucks. In many organizations, the lack of mutually understood expectations, inconsistent feedback, performance management and performance improvement plans, and the dreaded annual performance review often hinder rather than facilitate individual success in the workplace. Beyond that, poor performance management is often at the root of claims of harassment, bias, and even employment litigation. My guest today is Dustin Pascal. Dustin's a partner in Simon Pascal, a boutique law firm in Frisco. He's also president of Dallas HR and a leader with me in Texas, Sherm. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Dustin. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So let's start by defining terms. What is performance management? And is it even something that we can really manage or is it, are we just taking the wrong approach by even trying to manage it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that employers can do. I mean, performance management is is definitely when you drill down to it, at least in my mind, is the the day to day figuring out if employees are completing the essential functions of their job in a way that jibes with how you want them to do it. Are they doing a, a good job? Are they doing a bad job? Uh, I think uh, it, it's something that everybody does differently uh, and something that some people do ongoing and some that just do it once a year, but it's, it's monitoring the performance of your employees and kind of ensuring that it maintains throughout. So how does just, you know, poor performance management lead to legal problems for employers? Yeah. (laughs) In a multitude of ways. Uh, Yeah. One of them is, it's funny, I, I talk about it, I think oftentimes one of the biggest ones that seems backwards is the idea of being too nice. Uh, I think humans necessarily avoid confrontation. And so when they're, when they're evaluating their employees' performance, they tend to upsell the positive and kind of minimize the negative so that they can deliver that message without the confrontation moment. And the end result is that inevitably, 
Uh, I get some employer coming to me and they've been sued and they say, well, we fired them for performance. And I say, well, let me see all your performance reviews and they're all meets or exceeds expectations, but just like a minor note about something wrong. So it's kind of weird, but I think in a backwards way that that failure to have that honest conversation is what leads to the, the litigation. So it's it's. Uh, in your experience, anyway, it's less about inattentive managers and more about managers that are have been. We've had it drilled into us: say two nice things and then make a correction, right? And yeah. if you if you do that too heavily, then the employee may not even realize they've got an issue. Yeah, no, I mean that's it. That's exactly right. Because I, I, I think most companies drill into their HR professionals a few must-do performance reviews. And those HR professionals drill it down to their supervisors. So I don't think it's necessarily, to your point, yeah, people being inattentive. Yeah, it's it's that say two nice things and then one negative thing. And inevitably, it covers it up. And when you go talk to an employee and say, hey, you didn't get a raise because you've had poor performance. And then it's like, well, no one told me I had poor performance. Um, but it's even... In my mind, almost further than that, it's, I use my wife's company, which I won't reveal because she'd kill me, um, for all the things that, that I think performance management kind of falters a little bit. And it's funny because they'll do their performance reviews and then the managers will say, well, we can't give so and so that, that three. They're going to, they're going to complain. We need to up them to a four or the person does complain and they up them to a four and they do it again to try to avoid that confrontation or to even out some sort of bell curve or something like that. And now they're evaluating people's performance is higher than it truly is. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, and it's not often that we hear employees complaining that our managers are too nice. Uh, but in, in practice, that's kind of the root of the problem then. So if, if an employee's performance isn't up to snuff, when do we address that? Do we just make a note in a file and address it next June when their annual performance review comes around? You know, I, I think too many do that. It's either, oh, we're going to do it annually or, hey, we're a good company. We do it, you know, at six months and then annually. And I'm like, okay, but it, it's still, if you're not doing it until June or July and they had some issue in January, now we got a problem because they don't know it and you're going to hold it against them. It's going to go through. So, I mean, I think it's it's... It needs to be a regular thing and it doesn't have to be formal, but some sort of regular and ongoing, you know, whatever you want to call it, management by walking around was a hot concept for a while or what, what, whatever you want to call it, but it's got to be some sort of ongoing speaking to someone about their performance. And in my world, not to try to blend, but I tell employers, I hate verbal warnings as a form of discipline. And so I'm like, get rid of verbal warnings, but instead replace it with verbal coaching, kind of that ongoing performance management that's verbal so that you can kind of monitor them and, and then throw in maybe a six-month review and an annual review, and you can kind of document in those, hey, here's the verbal coaching that you and I have been having throughout this six-month period or this year period. Use the verbal for that instead of discipline. Yeah, and I see a lot of employers who have, even in environments that are not union organized, but they've got this whole framework, verbal warnings, written warnings, probation, and all of this. And you're, it always strikes me that that's really complicated. 
And the bottom line is that means we've got an employee who for three, four, six months isn't doing what we need them to do and isn't delivering what at the level we need we needed them to deliver. And uh, and then by the time you get to the end of that process, um, everybody's so frustrated, everybody's so angry with each other, uh, and managers, uh, you know, suddenly the, the next thing next time this employee walks in five minutes late, they're ready to get rid of them, uh, and you know, but we've still not addressed really the ultimate, hey, you've got to fix this or you're going to lose your job. Yeah. So, yeah. So what do you like to see is what's a good performance process look like? Do you like all those probations and all that? Or, hey, here's the expectation and fix it. Yeah. No, I, 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 the, I, I do a whole presentation on discipline management, performance management, because it drives me insane. The, the verbal warnings in particular kill me. And I, I love when HR professionals have a form that the bot, there's a box available on the form for verbal warning and they check it and then write stuff. That's, <laughs> that's not a verbal warning. That's a written warning. You wrote warning. that down. Yeah. And if you have a verbal, true verbal warning, in my mind, it is a complete waste of time because A, the employee probably doesn't, didn't see it the same way you did. You thought you were disciplining them. They thought y'all were just having a chat or you move on to a new company as an HR professional. And are you going to sit down with the new incoming HR person and say, hey, here's all the people that have verbal warnings so that you can be aware of them? No. And so each employee gets a restart, essentially, when, they, when a new HR professional comes in. I'm much harsher, especially because I see the negative effects of um, trying to be nice, that whole no good deed goes unpunished. So I'm much harsher, and I may three strikes you out. And it doesn't have to be a, a an official um, process, you know, like written warning, suspension, termination. Um, but in my mind, if, if an employee can't get it right after three times of some sort of discipline or something, um, they're never going to. And so it, I prefer that ongoing verbal coaching in terms of more performance related to the actual performance of their duties like hey you're not getting this task and I'm, let's let me help you through that um, and then when it comes to discipline yeah I'm one two three and and you're out um, but you got to be willing to get diverge from that uh, too many times I get a call from an HR professional or a client that's says hey uh, they've done this and I think that's pretty extreme but we're only on number one I'm like no fire them like that you're not helping your cause. So ongoing verbal talking and, and coaching with performance. Um, and then the three strikes are out on discipline. But in my mind, you have to also separate those, um, those two pieces. And in my mind, while discipline can be an aspect of performance management, discipline and performance improvement are two vastly different. Yeah. So by performance improvement, you're talking, this is how you do your job. This is what we need you to execute. This is what it looks like. This is what, a, you know, our quality standards are. This is how we talk to our customers, whatever those things are. And we can coach and incentivize people to do that stuff. But just not being a bully in the office or being to work on time or being available when you're supposed to be available, um, those kind of just raw behavioral traits. Those are what you're talking about as discipline. We're not going to discipline somebody into a better work product, right? We're just yeah. going to say, hey, either you get it or you don't. We're going to give you every chance as an employer to be successful. We're going to give you whatever tools might, you know, might be reasonable. 
but there's a, at some point you've got to deliver and, you know, we'll work with you, but that's up to you versus just being a knucklehead and you got to go. Yeah, no, I mean, I I always, I compare, um, I do a lot of speeches where I compare the workplace to the parent-child relationship because for better or worse, our employees act like children a lot of time. And so the way I make that comparison is, is to me, your child failing to do his or her homework, you ground your kid. That's, you didn't do your homework, you're grounded. Your, your kid trying their best to do their homework and getting a, a D, that's you as a parent saying, I'm gonna get you a tutor. We're going to improve your performance. The workplace is the same for me. It's if you can't show up to work on time, that's discipline. I don't need to put you on a performance improvement plan because you can't get to work. You don't need 90 days to establish that you can get to work on time. You need to be at work on time tomorrow. And so that's discipline. And to your point, behavior too. Like you got a bad attitude, you're bullying people. I don't need 90 days to show that you can exhibit a good attitude. No, you exhibit a good attitude tomorrow. And if you mess up again in 10 days, then I'm going to discipline you again. But if you've got an employee who there's a task or tasks of their job that that employee cannot complete to your satisfaction, that's the equivalent of, of the tutoring. And in my mind, the performance improvement plan is the tutor. Here are some things that you can do to work on getting better performance on these tasks. We're going to help you with that. And if that's successful, great, check. The tutoring worked. If it didn't, because I get a lot of questions sometimes from people like, oh, well, you're, that means if I, I can't discipline based on a performance improvement plan. Well, sure you can. If, if, if you give them the performance improvement plan and they can't get it, then you're going to terminate them, which is a form of discipline. It's not a termination because of behavior. It's a termination because, hey, maybe I made a bad hire. Uh, you know, you, you just can't perform the functions of this job despite me helping you. I'm, you know, my bad. That's my fault. And so discipline is different than a performance improvement plan. Um, and if you misuse the performance improvement plan, I think it just creates a cycle of worthlessness because employees think you're just using that performance improvement plan as a, a CYA to, to cover yourself so you can fire me without getting sued. We've done a really good job over 22 years of doing it the hard way of figuring out exactly how, how to hire the kind of people we need for our analyst role, which is the majority of the roles in our company. And if we get somebody who can't do the job, uh, we know pretty quickly. We know within four to six weeks they're not going to get this. Um, and we always look at that. At, uh, that's a bad on us. That's our error, you know. And and in those cases, as we term the person, it's no surprise to them either because they're getting constant feedback on how to improve, and it's just not working. Usually, you know, if it, you know, it's so rare for us, but when it happens they're usually quitting before we're at the point of giving up on them because it's so frustrating. And none of us want to have a job, you know, go to, you know, you know, try to do a job all day and, and know that we're not going to be successful at it. So uh, when, you know, if that constant feedback's there, then, then, you know, hopefully they'll, you know, they'll exit out themselves. But we, even there, we, we view that as an error on our part, not, not, not the applicant's deficiency. No, I think that's absolutely right. You, you, you've got to be able to say, hey, we just, we just didn't make that hire right. And, and I think it also eases with that, 
that termination moment to explain to the person, I don't think you're stupid. I don't, you know, I just didn't, I, I didn't put two and two together. I, I didn't do a good job of kind of comparing your resume, your skill set, your abilities to what I needed in this job. And that's on me, that's not on you, but it, it's not working out together a lot. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 18 and enter the keyword Dustin. That's D-U-S-T-I-N. On December 2nd, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Seven Steps to Making Bulletproof Hiring Decisions. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after December 2nd, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Dustin Pascal. So let's talk about that. We got a new employee. It sounds like performance management really starts with selecting that employee and then orient, orienting. Talk about some of that. What do we, what, you know, how would you suggest that from the moment we make that offer? We prepare that employee to be successful. Yeah, I mean, I think you immediately have to kind of set the expectations that somebody is going to be gauging your performance on a regular basis. I think too many employees start, and even if a company has a probationary period, they have a ninety-day probationary period. The employee kind of has this this belief: oh, well, I'm not going to be judged until day ninety. And so I have 90 days to kind of get myself together. And the problem is, okay, well, what, what if you're awful after 30 days? And then the amount of times I've had an employer reach out to me and say, you know, they're on a 90-day probation, but they're terrible. They're not getting anything right. I don't want to keep them for another 60 days. Can I get rid of them? Um, and, you know, legally, sure. Uh, you know, unless you've used some bad language to contract yourself into a 90-day guaranteed period of employment. Yeah, you can get rid of them, but that just because you can legally do it doesn't mean they're not going to reach out and try to sue you or make a claim. And so you're better off if just from the get-go, you explain to the employee, hey, either me or your supervisor or someone is probably going to be doing weekly check-ins with you. They don't have to be long, but maybe five, 10 minutes of just, hey, I've been kind of watching your performance and you're doing great. You know, do you have any questions for me? Is there anything you're not getting? Or alternatively, hey, over the last week, you have not really been hitting the mark on this one area. And, you know, before we get to that 90-day formal probationary review, let's see if we can fix that because I'd rather fix it now and not be in a problem then. And so I think you have to lay the groundwork that they don't get a guaranteed 90 days of just screwing up. Um, you know, if, if you're just constantly screwing up in the first week, we're probably going to take some action. You know, the, the 90 days is just meant to, to kind of give you a guideline. But it's also why I hate the 90-day probationary period. I hate all probationary periods. 
Why do we need a probationary period? You know, it's you're an at-will employee. You can be terminated at any point. And if your performance isn't great after a week, I'm going to try to help you. And if it's still not great, you're gone. I don't, I don't need 90 days to figure out whether you can do it. So, yeah. So where does that even come from? I'm guessing it's got to be something. Uh, somebody took somebody someplace took a, a, you know, a union avoidance class or something. Uh, or they came out of an organized environment where that was in a contract. And it's just infected all of the non-union employers, it seems like. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I think somehow it kind of filtered from that that union environment or or somebody started giving speeches about, hey, you know, give your employees a 90-day period or whatever. Somewhere along the way, a 90-day probationary period became a thing. And um, I'll tell you, every employer I get that gives me, hey, will you revise my handbook? One of the first things I rip out of their handbook is the 90-day probationary period because it, it's worthless, but also the amount of employers I know that don't abide by it, they say we have a 90-day probationary period, and after 90 days, they do nothing. They just keep on going, and they do no formal 90-day review process. And so it's, it's just a policy you're not following, but it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous in my mind. Is there any danger if it's in a handbook of it becoming a, con- a contract or a promise from the employer? No, I'm not. I'm never worried about it being in the handbook of being a contract because most people are going to have in their employee handbook, you know, this handbook is not a contract, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. What concerns me, though, is when people put it in an offer letter, sometimes the way it's worded in an offer letter gives the impression that it is a guaranteed 90 day period of employment, um, which is why when I soften that, then when you look at it, it seems just ridiculous because when I fix the language, it's usually, hey, you're in a 90-day probationary period, but you can be terminated at any point. And the employee goes, well, then what's probationary about it? And I'm like, exactly. Um, It's me gauging your performance, but as an employer, shouldn't you be gauging their their performance every day uh, for their entire employment? So... I don't, I don't ever worry about the handbook. It's the offer letters that give me this. Okay. So pay attention to offer letters. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we get employees in and, and we, uh, we orient them. Hopefully we spend some time really showing them how they do their job and acclimating them to how we do things here at XYZ Company. Um, what, other, what other mistakes do you see employers make uh, when an employee's not up to, up to speed as quickly as you'd want them to be? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's probably a couple things. I mean, one of the big things, I, I won't use law firms as an example of how to do things very much <laughs> because they're usually awful at it. Um, but one thing they do have as a setup is the whole partner-associate dichotomy. And what what that does is when you hire a brand new associate, a lot of times employees are scared to go to their supervisor to say, I don't know how to do XYZ task. Can you help me? Um, because they don't want to portray to their supervisor that they don't know how to do their job, even though it's okay if you can't do it, if you ask for help, and then you're given that help and and you fix it. So where that helps in a law firm environment is the new newly hired associates are oftentimes scared to go to their partner and say, can you help me with X, Y, Z? But they'll go to another associate that's been there for a year or two and say, hey, the partner gave me such and such task and I don't know how to do that. 
Um, can you help me? And the associate, unless they're just cutthroat, is generally going to say, sure, uh, here's how you do that, or here's a, a form that helps with that. And then the new associate is able to do something, produce it to the partner, and the partner can say, okay, we didn't do it exactly the way I wanted it, but you mostly got it. Here's how we can fine tune that. Um, so there's that mentor-mentee relationship almost. And I think a lot of companies don't necessarily provide that. And, and not every company is going to have coworkers at the same level doing the same task um, such that you can go to them and say, hey, how do you do this? Um, but I think you either got to create that and say, hey, here's who's some, some coworkers you can go to or be a, a, a true open door supervisor in the sense that you can say, hey, it's okay if you come to me and don't know how to do something, I'll help you figure that out. Now, once I've done that, don't come to me and say, I don't know how to do this because you should now, I've shown you. But the first time, Sure, because every company, whether you have the skill set or not, every company is going to have a different way of doing things and a different operational mindset. So I think companies have to do a better job of having an open door policy and not just, oh, I wrote it in my handbook that I have an open door policy. You can come talk to me. Um, and I think that takes training supervisors um, because you as HR or you as the, the company owner may have. If you're not telling your supervisors how to do that, um, then it's not filtering down. So let's say we get to that point where this person just is not, their performance is not going to get them where we need them to be. And and so we're going to have to separate that employee from, from the company. What are some things employers, when they're talking to that employee, should or shouldn't do as we separate them? You touched on it a little bit, but let's dig deeper into that conversation. Yeah, one of the big ones, again, for me is being too nice. I think, um, especially if it's performance related, we're scared as employers to say, you can't do this job. Um, and so what you get a lot of times and what we have a client or had a client that, uh, that did it a ton, just I'm going to classify every termination as you're not the right fit or we're going a different direction. And, and I hate that because you're, you're avoiding the confrontational moment or the uncomfortable moment, not necessarily confrontational, but the uncomfortable moment of saying your performance isn't up to snuff. And the result is you're providing the employee with very little knowledge about why they're being terminated. And when employees don't have knowledge, they fill the gaps and they fill the gaps with, it's certainly not me. It's got to be you. And so... I'm going to fill the gap of you're not the right fit or we're going in a different direction with I'm not the right fit because I'm not the right race or you're going in a different direction because you're going with someone younger and I fill those gaps. And while you may ultimately prevail, how much money are you going to spend? Because you were just scared to say, hey, you're not doing a very good job. And despite our best efforts, you still can't. Um, so I think that that niceties, the, those niceties that occur, um, are a big problem. I think the other problem is employers trying to clean up bad performance management. And what I mean by that is they didn't do that ongoing coaching or counseling. They didn't give the six-month review or the annual review or 
where they did cover up the annual review with, oh, you're doing just fine. And so when it comes to termination, they're like, oh, crap, now i got to figure out how I'm going to explain this. And so they go back in time and they outline everything that that employee's ever done. I call it the kitchen sink termination. You know, you, you were late these many times. You, you had a bad attitude. You're not a good person. Whatever it may be. Um, and they, they literally unload. Uh, you know, I can, I, the other analogy I use is you always, they always say, don't go to the, don't go to the grocery store and grocery shop if you're hungry because you're going to buy everything. And don't, don't terminate if you're angry. Um, same thing, angry or failure to kind of do that performance process. And so they throw in these kitchen sink terminations. And the result is from a legal standpoint, now you, you got a problem when it comes to discrimination claims that getting two in the weeds. They got to show, you know, an employee's got to show a prima facie case. I, as the employer, show a legitimate non-discriminatory reason. Employee shows pretext, which means your reason's false. If I just threw down 30 reasons for terminating you, I've now kind of covered up what the real reason is, and it makes it easier for the employee to attack and minimize uh, our legitimate non-discriminatory reason, and their case gets better. So I always say, if, you, if you've done good performance management and you've done good disciplinary management, then there's one reason for termination. Now, it may say that reason is attendance and you have three previous attendance problems. That doesn't, that's still one reason, attendance. But I, don't give me five, six, seven reasons for termination because now you've just made the termination waste of time. Yeah, and I hear from my non-HR friends primarily, uh, you know, who are managers, supervisors, or even executives, um, who who say, well, you know, I I communicated this to the employee that this was the expectation, either a behavior or a performance issue. And we had conversations around it and all of that. Uh, but HR won't let me fire them because there's nothing in the HR file about it. Um, and I think those are probably more bureaucratic organizations. Uh, but but at what point do you think how important is the HR file versus the manager's desk file or whatever notes the manager's doing? Yeah, if the manager is keeping documentation, then me as a lawyer from a litigation standpoint, I'm fine with that. I just want some documentation. Yeah, I think the problem you have in that instance a lot of times is the manager did not keep a manager's file or a desk file of any kind. And HR is saying, you know, do you have anything to, to, to validate this poor performance? But, but if the manager has documentation, you know, even emails to, you know, hey, I talked with you yesterday about XYZ that you were doing wrong. This email is just to confirm we had that conversation. You know, here's what I expect you to be doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, now you've, you've, you've got some documentation, some trail. I'm fine with that. I don't think it has to be in the formal HR file. Um, the only thing that gives me pause there is making sure you're training your supervisors and managers in in what I consider HR functions, basically deputize them as HR professionals because I don't want a manager's file that is riddled with things that are going to make my lawsuit terrible, awful comments and whatever it may be. And so make sure you're training them if you're going to allow them to have a file. So you don't want to note in the file that says something to the effect of, like every other black female we've ever had who's over 40 years old, she does this. Right, that kind exactly. Of, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today, Dustin. I appreciate you Perfect. joining us. Thank yeah. you. And 
Thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and imperatives marketing coordinator, Katie Bautista, keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.